What's up, family? This is the Just Breathe podcast, and I am April Love, personal brand success coach, entrepreneur, and now your new best friend. Just Breathe is all about all things you, taking your personal life to the next level. I know that it's sometimes hard to even catch your breath on a day-to-day basis, but we're going to inhale, exhale, and just breathe. So excited about today's guest. I have known her for such a long time, and she is just amazing. She's an amazing human. And I am excited to share it with you. Um, she recently released her book and I'm going to let her tell you about it. But I would like to share with you guys Judge Tyranny Gundy. Welcome. Thank you, friend. Hey, April Love. Hey, Tyranny. <laughs> Girl, I feel like this is going to be a great conversation. The energy is right. But I am so excited. I could read your bio, but that's not what we do here. I want okay. you to just share with the people a little bit about yourself from then to now. So, yes, Tyranny. Tyranny. I am my daddy's daughter. Yes. I am the daughter of a junkie. And I wrote a book about my life story chronicling my childhood and growing up with a father who has been addicted to crack cocaine since 1978. Wow. Yeah. 78. 78. And the book is The Daughter of a Junkie. But I want you to hear this part. So I'm going to start over. I want to be very intentional to make sure Mm -hmm. that everyone hears this part. The Daughter of a Junkie, A True Love Story. Mm. Yes. Love. Love like April love. Ah, no, girl. <laughs> that, that love, that's, that's, I feel like that's one of the ooh, most powerful words ever. I always ever. say it's the most powerful drug on earth. Absolutely. Love. I mean, it's torn down kingdoms, mm-hmm. <laughs> dominions, yes. And built kingdoms. Absolutely. And judges. Yes, and why we exist. Yes. Yeah, yeah. products of love. So, Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So tell us about you as a judge. Tell us about your personal story. How did you um how did you come to be? You know, where are you from? Mm-hmm. What inspired you? What's your background? You know, what did this junkie raise? Who did he raise? Um, I think my father did an incredible job mm-hmm. along with my mother raising my sister and I, Mia. In the book, I call us, I coin us the core four. Nice. Yeah. And so I was born in Jacksonville, Florida, Mm -hmm. raised in Jacksonville, Florida, in the poorest zip code in the state, 32209. And Duval. Duval. (laughs) You know you can't say Duval like that. I I just said, you're authentic. You had to say it. You had to do it. Yes. You had to do it. Yes. So I tell people, you know, if you're from the north side where, where I'm from. Right. We don't. We we never say we're from Jacksonville. We say we're from Duval. Right. People who say they're from Jacksonville, mm-hmm. they live on across the bridge. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> well, I went to a lot of people. I went to FAMU, so it was a lot of people from Duval. Yes, at, <laughs> on that campus. Yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so growing up is so incredible that at seven years old, I decided to become a judge at seven. Not a judge, a lawyer. At, at seven. seven. Okay. At seven, because the police was at my house to arrest my father. Wow. But they didn't have a warrant. And so my dad said he needed a lawyer to fix it. Now, at seven years old, I didn't know what that meant. Mm. I just knew I wanted to help my daddy. Mm. I'm a daddy's girl. 
And so at seven, I decided to become a lawyer. But fast forward two years later, Mm -hmm. one of my friends um, who was mentally disabled was taken away and accused of a crime that I, at nine years old, did not believe he had the physical or mental capacity to commit. And he never came back home. I never saw him again. What? Yes. And um, when I asked my dad about him, he said that the boy never had a fair shot because the judge did not look like us. Mm. Again, I had no idea what that meant at nine. Right. I just said, well, I guess I got to be a judge too. Wow. <laughs> so again, this is why I say make a plan and watch God laugh. Mm-hmm. No idea what I'm talking about at seven or nine. And definitely no idea that they're related or connected Mm -hmm. or that in order to become a judge, you have to first become a lawyer. Mm. But I did. And so since seven and nine, I have always been on a path to become those things. And I've never veered, even though it may look like, oh, she's doing this or she's doing that. Everything was always towards becoming a lawyer and a judge to help my family and my community. But I did so with the discipline, the work ethic, and the love that my parents, my mom, and my dad instilled in me. Right. Which is why I focus on the true love story part. Mm -hmm. Because I know a lot of times when you hear these kinds of stories, you always think, oh, I overcame so much to triumph. And I did. I'm not discounting that or dismissing it. But I was only able to overcome it with the love. Because I was unconditionally loved my entire life by my mother and my father and so many other people in my family and community. And I also had a partner in love and life. You've met her, my sister Mia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And so, again... That's why I focus on the love part. So your parents were still together. So set this set set stage. So little seven year old Terry, who sinks vision and forward thinking as a little girl, is in what kind of a household? So it's two parent home. Mm-hmm. In spite of any other things, they were together. They were doing this together. Your parents. So yeah, I don't want to mislead anyone. Okay. <laughs> okay. So okay. Let, let's roll it back a little bit. Okay. When I started by telling you that I'm from Duval, the north side, the Mm -hmm. poorest zip code in the state of Florida. Right. Okay. Also tells you that my daddy is a junkie and he was a bona fide junkie, not a pretend junkie or Mm -hmm. some people like to say functional. We do not use that in my house. My father Mm. does not use that. I was about to say that. Um, Yeah. I'm glad you clarified it. We do not use that in my house. My father is very clear and adamant that he is either functioning as a man and a father, and a Mm -hmm. husband, and a son, or he is doing crack cocaine and not functioning at all. He does Mm. not do anything when he is doing drugs except drugs. He does not hydrate. He does not drink, eat. He does not, he says, have sex. This is him telling Mm -hmm. you. He does nothing but drugs. And so to him, Mm -hmm. that is not functioning. Wow. So, yes, my sister and I, because I think of each other Mm -hmm. and because we have felt love every day of our lives, that we lead with love and light and optimism 
But our household was very chaotic. It was the traditional things that you would think of when you think of junkie behavior. We moved a lot. Mm-hmm. There were many times when we would not have food or lights, sometimes not shelter, even if it's temporary. Um, and we always had a underlining feeling that we might die today. Wow. Or that our parents Mm -hmm. might die today. So there was, we we looked back once we felt like we were safe. Mm -hmm. And we used to say, it's so nice not to feel that fear of dying or, or your loved one or your parent dying. And I think for my sister, it happened when we moved to South Georgia. For me, South Georgia was just simply hell for me. You know, I met, um, I went to move from Jacksonville when my mom and my parents, they did get divorced. Okay. And we moved to Atlanta. And we were here a couple years. And then we moved to South Georgia. And I encountered an overt racism that just as a young child, I did not know still existed. Mm -hmm. You know, so foolishly or naively, I was like, slavery's over. Racism is over. Mm -hmm. Dr. King fought the battle. But this is through the eyes of a child. Child, Right. Mm -hmm. Until you meet it in South Georgia. Mm -hmm. Head on, and and I write this in the book. The stench of racism, at the time that I had to deal with it, was a pale comparison to the trauma that I experienced being the daughter of a junkie. Like at the height of it, my daddy's addiction took a backseat to it. What? Yeah. I was slapped in class by one of my teachers in front of everyone. An adult. An adult. (laughs) In front of everyone. And nothing happened to her. Nothing. What did that, in that moment, what did that, what did that do to you? It could have broke me. Mm -hmm. In different ways, for different reasons. I have no idea how we got this deep this fast. <laughs> Girl, I'm telling you, somebody, this jet, this jet read conversations. Take your breath away. Just, just breathe, just baby. Breathe. Just breathe. <sighs> so I am in South Georgia, and like I said, that I should take back that nothing happened to her. Nothing happened to her. From an authority standpoint. Mm-hmm. But my four foot 11 inch mother mm-hmm. happened to her. Mm. Which was the reason that I was not broken. So again, you went to fam. 
you know about the people from Duval. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the time. To this day. <laughs> okay. I am a lawyer and a judge. Now, I am a lot more refined than I was in middle school, junior high. I'm sure. I am sure. I was fresh out of Duval. Mm-hmm. Full of Duval. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and naturally, my first instinct would be to respond in kind. But again, not knowing how I knew, mm-hmm. but something came over me, and I like to say that it was the ancestry blood in me that grounded and rooted me and told me to make a different decision before I ended my life, before it started. Mm. Because if I had responded in kind to that teacher, I would not be sitting here. I'm sure about that. Because even though she had no consequences, had I responded in kind, Mm In a town like that, yeah. in an environment like that, yeah, I would have had irreparable consequences. Absolutely. And so I got up and ran. And I come from a family that is always fight, never flight. But in that moment... I knew that this was something bigger than me, that I needed help. I could not fight this alone. By yourself. As a little girl. As a little girl. And so I ran and I called my mom. And again, when I say nothing happened to her, I take it back because my mother happened to her. And my mother proceeded to tell this woman off and candidly threaten her. Or I take that back because my mom told her she was not threatening her. She was promising her. (laughs) Yes, mother. Yes. (laughs) In a way that only a black mama can. Mm -hmm. And I felt, even though I was still in her class, wasn't removed. Nothing happened to her except my four foot 11 inch mother. I felt vindicated. Absolutely. I felt protected. I even felt respected in a way Mm -hmm. that she had not respected me before. Because before that moment, that incident, she overlooked me. She never saw me. And even if I became seen to her now because she was afraid of having an outward experience with my mother again, she did not want that. Mm -mm. You know, she didn't want that kind of interaction or heat. So for me, when I say I could have been broken, but I wasn't, even though nothing administratively happened to her. Right. My little black mama happened to her and she changed her behavior with me. Mm. She had been warned. She had (laughs) been promised. Absolutely. (laughs) That's amazing. What was she thinking? What was the lady thinking? Did she really think she was going to get away with it? 
I think so. (laughs) And there is a moment in the book. um, I've given you a lot already, but there is a moment in the book where where she actually confront is too hard of a word, where she approaches me later in life Mm -hmm. and we have a conversation. This teacher. Mm -hmm. Oh, keep reading, April. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Keep reading. Keep reading. Wow. So you, so you impacted her. That kind of probably changed her trajectory a little bit. Her, your mom did. My mom that did. Moment. And I will tell you in the conversation, clearly, I think I did impact her. Mm-hmm. But what I told her, and I wasn't being mean. I was just being honest. I'm glad that I impacted you. But you had very little impact on my life. Good. You know, because... I did not make the wrong choice or respond incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And because I had a mother who came and defended and protected me, right. I was able to go on mm-hmm. without thinking about you at all. Mm. Wow. So let's get into that, these <laughs> moments. Because there are moments that change the entire trajectory. That in, in those moments, there had to be some key moments, if you can pull some up, that... Because, I mean... To, I mean, you visual. You gave me a whole visual of 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 your life early on, and to still have you know parents who I'm sure instill f- from reading the book and, and talking to you, who put these values and things into you. What are some moments that you can really like pull on that really kind of affected how you were able to stay focused? Because you stayed on track. You 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 declared it at seven and nine, but you actually did it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like a, a child's like pie in the sky kind of thing. It actually mm-hmm. manifested, it happened, you worked towards a goal and here you are. So what are those moments that you can kind of like share with us throughout your upbringing that kind of probably had an impact on you staying focused and getting to your goal of becoming a lawyer and then of course a judge? So a couple things. Um, I don't know if I have a straight answer for that, but I'm going to try and work yeah. my way to it. Because okay. I had like three thoughts come in my head as soon as you said mm-hmm. that. Multiple moments. <laughs> Multiple moments. Yeah. The first moment is me and Michelle Gundy. Mm. It was very, very easy to stay on track for my little sister, who I had prayed for, literally, before she came. And I promised God and my father and my mother that I would protect her. Mm-hmm. So I know that a lot of times sisters have, um, what would you call it, attention or a competition. Yeah, or even rivalry. We've never had that. My sister and I have never had a fight in our lives. It's, she's never been a burden. I've never thought of anything about being a big sister except an honor and a privilege. Mm. Yeah, I thought I was born. To be her big sister? To be her big sister. How, how far apart are you? Almost five years. Oh, wow. And she is the reason that I was able to survive the chaos and the trauma because, you know, my parents are being young parents doing the best that they can, but they are, again, making a lot of foolish decisions that have would impact children. Mm-hmm. Of course. My sister and I were able to have each other, lean on each other. And I tell people, you know, people always ask me that, how far are you apart? Mm-hmm. And even though, so you, you got to think about the book. It starts when I'm five years old. Mm-hmm. 
which means if I'm five, Mia has just been born. Right. Now I'm seven. Mia is two. I'm nine. Mia is four. Like Mia is, I'm young, but Mia is unbelievably young. Mm -hmm. But we are surviving, going through this entire journey together. And the days that the weight is so heavy that I need a break, this little four, five, six-year-old little girl takes the weight and carry it for me. Mm. Yeah. And so when you say what keeps me focused was very easy. Me and Michelle Gundy, I woke up every single day wanting to be a better version of myself because I had a little sister who looked up to me. I had a little sister to protect and I had to get us out of the ghetto. Mm. And we were leaving. She was your why? She was my why. She was my everything. We tell people, you know, our thing is two sisters, one heart. That's who we are. Wow, that's beautiful. And so <laughs> the focus outside of that was really the goal of changing the trajectory of our lives. Mm -hmm. And then... There's a part in the book, it's kind of the culmination. And I think that if you're from the kind of community that I'm from, you will understand this. Things that seem hard to other people mm -hmm. are not hard to us. When you are reared mm -hmm. and you grow up into an area that is psychologically developmentally, warfare every day, focus comes almost natural. Now, what you do with that focus. Right, right, where you place it, but it's, yeah. But it's yours to have. If it you, is. Right. Because we have Keeping been. your head on a swivel. <laughs> But we have been developed such at a faster speed, at mm -hmm. a faster pace yeah. where we are trying. It's training. We can do anything. I mean, I, it, when you hear the things that I do at eight, it's almost like you can't believe that an eight-year-old is doing this. But if you're from where I'm from, all the eight-year-olds are doing this. It's not mm -hmm. a big deal. So that that wasn't it really wasn't the focus. I used to get questioned all the time, like, how do you deal with your household or your parents or, you know, your dad doing this or your mom doing that? And I'm like, once I made it to Clark Atlanta, I knew I was going to be a lawyer and a judge. Just knew it. I had been trained my entire life. Mm. None of the people on that campus, I mean, literally, and I loved it. I mean, I obsessed over it. It was wonderful to see all of this, these beautiful, successful black people mm -hmm. who paid their kids tuition for the year. I'd never heard of people having that much money. <laughs> but it was beautiful. And, and no disrespect to their children, but when I looked at them, I didn't see the same fire in their eyes that I had. Mm -hmm. And still have, mind you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all over you. Like, you ain't, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at you like, girl, you ain't even had, you, you just beginning. God, it's there. 
Right. Yes. Yeah. I can tell people the the, the hardest part mm-hmm. was getting out of the ghetto. Mm-hmm. But the moment I stepped foot on that campus, mm-hmm. I knew I would make it. Mm-hmm. Nothing would stop me. Nothing. There was nothing in front of me that I would not be able to handle. But that was because I had been prepared. Mm. I had been trained by the streets of Duval, by my loving parents, by my community, by my grandmother, by my aunts, by my uncles. Everybody had poured into me to build me in a way that I would maybe bend but never break. So what's so amazing about what you just said, about coming onto that campus, having, you know, had the life that you had, which we're going to still go back and kind of talk about what those those things that were going on, kind of give more of a visual aspect of, of that first 18 years before you get to this campus, right? And so I'm thinking about all the, the girls and the boys that came onto campuses or, you know, at different campuses all across the country and had to kind of go through the, whatever they've gone through. If they had a book, if somebody, an auntie or whoever were able to give them something at the age of seven or eight or nine, what kind of things do you think can be instilled into them early on? Like that you were able to kind of glean from and make that focus, find your why, work towards those goals in spite of what was going on and really set out to do this thing in inner college. Like, cause I'm sure you didn't have a blueprint. You had to fill out applications. You had to do everything that you had to do to get you to that campus. That was really profound. Whereas it's so many people that just parents do it for them or we're, you know, legacy generation, third, third set of people that go to this college and that sort of thing. So it's already been mapped out for them. You didn't have that. No, I was the first college graduate on both sides of my family. How in the world did you make it to that campus? Because I think it's so many kids right now that are living that life, be it 12 years old, 13 years old. They have goals. Now, they, they probably did the thing, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor. But how? How do they find their why? What do they do? You said a village. There are so many key things you said. You had a village of people. Mm-hmm. There was still, you know, I feel like I got to go back and do it for them. I have my sister. That's my why. I got to get her out of here if I get out of here. So how do people tap into that? Because I know it's a lot of people that want to help a lot of young people find their way to you that day you landed on that campus. Yeah, that it, it's one of the reasons I dedicated the book to other sons and daughters of junkies. Right. And it's so many. It's so many, which leads me to the advice I would give. Mm-hmm. And the advice that my sister and I had the discernment, but we were fostered in a home with my mommy and daddy despite their flaws either by design or unintentional, they did an incredible job of teaching us to be our authentic selves. Mm. And that may sound like a really simple thing, but so many people struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially sons and daughters of addicts because of the shame and the stigma associated with the addicts and their families. Mm. And so we are running from who we are. We're trying to pretend to be someone else. Yeah. And that never works. Mm-mm. Imposter syndrome it's, never works. Never. Never works. And so the shame, when you, you when you carry that shame and stigma at a very young age, you're already putting like a ceiling over what you can do. So my parents may have said, hey, we're not perfect. We made mistakes. But y'all are perfect. 
Mm. Y'all are the best version of us. You can become a lawyer and a judge because you are my child. So your parents were affirming you. In spite of whatever your dad was going through, he was always, he did affirm you. Oh, that's awesome. Not not just affirming. I just told you my mom came and threatened a woman's life. Right. (laughs) Right. They didn't just affirm us. They backed it up. They would fight anybody for or with us. Mm. And they never, never, never doubted our abilities. So I didn't have the kind of parents who said, oh, they're kids. They can't do that. Or they're kids. They don't know what they're talking about. Or you're an adult, so you must be right. Mm. My parents always listened to us. And if we had the best answer, the best reason, the best logic, that's what they stood by. They didn't care who it was. Like, yes, it's it's ironic that I am a traffic court judge now. <laughs> but my father used to let me drive without a license. Do you know why? Because he said I was the best driver he knew. <laughs> he taught Life me how or to, not. <laughs> he taught me how to drive at nine years old. So when he he would give me his car to drive as a teenager before the age that is legally allowed, and people would question him, he would say, my daughter's a better driver than you. At five years old, when I worked for my dad, and I mean literally worked for my dad and my mom, we had a family business called Pistol Pete. I was the cashier. I stood on milk carton and wrung people out. What age? Five. And everybody thought it would be the cutest little thing until I rung them out with the exact correct Mm -hmm. amount, counted their money back. But here's the part that the people, the public didn't get to see. I got paid every Friday just like everyone else. At five. At five. (laughs) And by the time I was probably eight or nine, I might have been his highest paid employee. Well, I see where the work ethic was instilled. And when people questioned, and he didn't hide this. Mm. When they questioned, why are you paying this little girl so much money and more than me? You know, people get in their feelings. My daddy told them I was the best employee he had. They wanted to make more money than me. They should work harder than me. That's more than affirmation. That is. That's walking the walk, talking the talk. So no what I mean, you've said it. You're the best driver. You're the best employee. Why else wouldn't you think even to this day, I'm going to be the best judge. I'm going to be the best lawyer. I'm going to be the best mother, the best author. Because, girl, you're working this book. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, I have a background in politics before getting on the bench. And so... I, that is how my brain works. Like um, my best friend, she, I did an audiobook that I'm sure you know about. Mm-hmm. It is scored with a mu- um, original music mm-hmm. song by my best friend, Iman Ramadan. Mm. And so Iman always goes, I think in music. Mm. Well, I think in strategy. So her brain works in music. My brain works in strategy and mm. logic. I have a minor in mathematics. You're a whole brain, a left brain and a right brain. <laughs> You're a, <laughs> I'm a whole brain. You're a whole brain. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so that is how a lot of the things that I have done with this book comes from my background in politics. So, you know, instead of 
putting a candidate out there. My book is the candidate. Mm, that's powerful. Did y'all catch that? <laughs> this book, The Daughter of a Junkie, A True Love Story, is in office. <laughs> <laughs> On campaign trail right now. Well, it's similar to a candidate. Yes, absolutely. Because of the subject matter mm -hmm. and the deepness and the taboo of the book, mm -hmm. just like a candidate, you needed to get to know the book intimately mm -hmm. so that you could let your guard down. Yeah. Because a lot of people did not expect for this book to be talking about not just the subject matter, but also the love and how to lead with love and light. And so that was a big part of why I did choose that strategy because it was very important to me mm -hmm. not only to address the shame and stigma associated with addicts and their families, but to also give you a preview mm -hmm. that you're not going to walk away from my story or that my hope is that you won't walk away from my story feeling worse. That you will actually walk away feeling freed, mm -hmm. feeling like you have been empowered mm -hmm. and that you have been given a choice to lean into the light. Lean into it. Lean, lean into it. Lead with love it. and lean into that light. Yes. You can accomplish anything. Anything. Let's really tap into what you said about the taboo aspect of it all. What kind of pushback did you get when you started telling people that and referencing your father, something that people try to act as a, like a negative connotation. My dad's a junkie. Um, I don't want to talk about that. You yeah, know, it was kind of what 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 were the what were the, the what was the chatter? Oh my god, it was nonstop, and and I still get some of it. it what about in your family? Initially, in my okay. family, okay, um, because the the thing about my family is that because I have been calling myself the daughter of a junkie my entire life, my family was not as much taken aback okay. Okay. as people have been. Because uh, one, you got to first deal with the title, mm -hmm. the title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the like shock value of it all. Like. Yes. And so if you're not a part of my family or you don't know me, it's like, whoa, what are you talking about? What mm -hmm. is going on here? Okay, so then you get past the title. My family, the title never was an apprehension for them. For them, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. But what was, was possibly how this was going to affect and expose, like, my father and parts of our lives. Mm. And you know what I find interesting, and I love him and I defend him almost always. But what I did find interesting is that when I first start talking about this book, people always say, what does your dad think? Mm -hmm. How does your dad feel? Mm -hmm. And I said, when are you going to ask about the two little girls that had to survive? Right. When are, when are you going to say, well, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And what do you think? Right. Like I, I just found, but that that spoke to the shame and stigma exactly because they were they were so worried about the adult you're exposing and his, him and exposing his shame right, but not worried about the, the kids right and their trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I would tell them, which is true, my father is extremely proud of me. Mm -hmm. He's read the book, 
Mm. He's proud of the book. But more importantly, it's my story. Yes. It's your story. It's my story. Authentically your story. And I don't owe my story to anyone. I don't owe it to my daddy. I don't owe it to my mama. Mm -mm. I don't owe it to my family. I don't owe it to the people who do not understand that junkie is not a bad word in my family. Right. It's my story. Your truth. This is, and yeah. I will not be silenced and I will not be made to feel ashamed of mm -hmm. who I am, of where I come from, or that my daddy is a junkie. And that I love him immensely. Mm. A love story. A true love story. What does shame mean to you, though? Because people try to impose and and and, and shame is a, a huge burden. But I think it's sometimes in the eye of the beholder. What is shame to tyranny? So funny you asked that question. So, um, you know, you hosted a table talk for me. Mm -hmm. And I've been having these table talks where we have an intimate discussion about the book. Right. My sister's best friend hosted one for us two days ago. Okay. And someone asked us that question. And my sister went first. And she said, I don't know how to answer that because I have never had shame. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, me and Michelle. Just breathe. Yes. Wow. And so it really wasn't much for me to say after that because the only thing in our neighborhood growing up that people would try and make us feel ashamed of, we had owned. That's And it can't be used against you. It can't be used against us. So we mm. never grew up in an environment of shame. Wow. So my sister's like, I can't answer that for you. She's like, you know, my sister's an amputee. Mm -hmm. She almost died. We talk about it in the book. She's never been ashamed of, of any anything. of that because she doesn't know nothing but to be her authentic self. I don't know anything but to be my authentic self. Your parents did a hell of a job. A hell of a job. <laughs> Chaos, uh, despite any and all of obstacles whatsoever. To have a child to raise up, that you've raised, and they say, I don't, I don't know what shame is. What? How freeing that is. You were poor. So? so and your dad's a junkie. Okay. What? Nothing to use against you. You rendered, what is the devil? You rendered the devil. I rebuked him. Like... <laughs> you can't even do you can't do nothing to me. Right. You can't shame me with my own truth that I accepted a long time ago. And it, apparently your dad's the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's I think that that's big. That's you really know big. It, it it was kind of I think a vortex or a boomerang. Mm -hmm. Because I talk about this in the book as well, to love and embrace a black man. When I say I love black men, I love black men because they have always loved and protected me. Mm. That's amazing. And so with my dad, mm -hmm. 
I was trying to explain this to someone the other day. During the 80s crack epidemic, Mm -hmm. everyone in our communities was telling us that addicts, especially black men, had no value and that we should throw them away. And so then we would go tell our men, mm-hmm. you have no value. No I'm going to throw you away. Exactly. Even the government, like, you can't have any Section 8. You can't have any aid if the man's in the house. It was an of agenda. Of course the man is going to start to believe yeah. he has no value. I serve no purpose. You don't need me. You know what? As a matter of fact, I'm going to protect you from me and leave you. And my kids. Yes. It's the right because thing to I do. am protecting you from the monster I am mm-hmm. or the person who brings nothing but trauma and chaos and violence to you. So what I'm going to do is spare you because I love you. Well, see, my sister and I never did that to my daddy. Mm-mm. We constantly told him, you have value to us and whatever part you give us, we want because we love you immensely. And whatever you have to give, we will take. And the more we want it from him, even though it's a constant battle, the more he worked to give us more. The more he worked to step up and be a good father despite his disease. Because people are constantly asking us, how did your father do all this and be an addict? Right. Love. Girl, the love story aspect is coming alive way My grandmother loved him through it. His sisters loved him through it. We never threw him away. We never told him you do not have value to us. Whatever you are, you are mine and I am half of you and I am proud of that. And I am going to fight for every ounce of it every day. Wow. So I think that that is why my father was allowed to not live in shame either because we were never ashamed of him. And I just think that we have to all give a little bit more grace mm-hmm. and a lot more love. Yeah. The world needs it. Yes. So what kind of parent does that make you, this life experience, this love you've had and carried into adulthood? Um, I heard you talking about a conscious parent. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've been hearing it so much lately. So um, my friend, Dr. Shafali, wrote a book called Conscious Parent. And I'm not sure if I'm quite there. Mm -hmm. And I will even say that there are some things that I do better than my parents. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that I am working to do more like them. 
because I wanted to give my kids the confidence and life skills and belief in their abilities Mm -hmm. the way that my parents did without the trauma and the chaos and the violence. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing about growing up in trauma. It impacts your decisions. And so instead of being the parent that my parents were, Mm -hmm. I started parenting with slight forms of fear. I don't want them to feel this. Mm. I don't want them to go through this. Again, say what you want about my parents. Yeah. And you're going to want to judge them, and I hope to God you don't. Because they were amazing for me and my sister. But for them, no us. But for what they went through, I would not have to know how to deal with. I have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so my children are incredible. But what I have done or what I am working on doing is accepting that they do not have to be as strong as my sister and I. And they do not have to be as perfect as we were. And I have to stop letting my fear (laughs) lead in trying to protect them from the life we lived. Mm -hmm. I have to lean a little bit more in this love I've been talking about. Right. <laughs> lean a little bit more in this light that I've been talking about. And trust that they will be fine. That does not mean they will not have heartache right. or pain. Yeah. Because let's be honest. No matter who you are, no matter what color, creed, social, economic exactly. background, there is no escape in life without pain. We all deal Life's with it. Life, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No matter. But, but I need to give them the confidence that they will survive, and I can't do that with fear. Mm-mm. Because that's one of the greatest things my parents did. They never doubted my sister and I's abilities. Not once. They never worried that we wouldn't make it. They never worried that I wouldn't become a judge or I wouldn't become a lawyer or that I wasn't going to make it or that I wasn't going to be okay because they looked at me every single day and said, you are amazing. You are better than me. And I have prepared you for it all. And I was crazy enough to believe them. Right. And look what happened. You proved them right. I want to give my (laughs) kids that. Yes. I don't want to handicap them. Mm -hmm. And I see so many parents doing that. Let me rush in and save the day. Don't you, you know, you got to be there 24 hours a day with them. No, you're right. Because you got to get up. You got to. But but more importantly, you got to know you can get up Mm -hmm. on your own. Absolutely. 
that's what I want as a parent. But what I can tell you is that I may not be a perfect parent, but I think I'm a damn good parent. Not because I'm perfect, but because I work at it every single day. I work really hard and with intention Mm -hmm. to be a good parent. Guess what? That's all you can do. That's all I can do. (laughs) God's got the rest, but that's all you can do. And trust, I, I am almost 110% positive you instilled everything they they need to do it on their own. And they will. They and then will. you'll be looking like, oh. Yeah, my daughter launched, um, she's an entrepreneur. She launched her t-shirt line nice. last week, sold out. She's relaunching. I mean, just to see the mm-hmm. resilience and yeah. the determination and the entrepreneurship, just the mm-hmm. things that are in all of our blood and our family, right. to see them do it. And when I, here's the cutest thing, when I'm trying to help her, you know what she said to me? What she said? Mommy, it's like your book. <laughs> I'm going to do it all on my own. And when I need help, I'll ask you for help. Mm. Because I watch you create something out of nothing. nothing. And that's what I want to do. But I know that if I need you, you're there. And that's all she can ask. So, yeah, like just living, like she literally saw me like create, write this book, work every day, 10 pages a day, and then go from unexpectedly having to publish the book myself. Like it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. I thought I was just doing the creative part. I didn't know I was going to have to do the business part, too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we think they're not learning, they're learning. They're watching. They're watching. The example is the most powerful thing. Mm Absolutely. Absolutely. And all the all the young ones around you are watching. So it's important. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. It's amazing work. So any last words for people? Like, I know I want you to go get the book. I'm going to have you share the details in a minute yes. how they can make that happen. But um, what would you like to say in closing? I think that it's really important for us go, to go back. Mm-hmm. To the part that you found the most incredible. Mm -hmm. We have got to start living a life free of shame. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. The shame is killing all of us in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it's not just shame of being an addict or shame of being the daughter and addict. Shame comes in so many forms where we're ashamed to be poor, we're ashamed to be a woman, we're ashamed to be black, we're ashamed that our children aren't perfect, Mm -hmm. we're ashamed that (laughs) they're not in every single club at the school. We've put all of these pressures on ourselves. And I just think it's really important that we start to lean into the light and the love. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that, not just by giving others grace, but ourselves. Mm -hmm. We all deserve more grace and love. And social <laughs> media has us believing 
something that is not real. Because there are so many people out here suffering in silence. Absolutely. Ashamed. Ashamed. Mm -hmm. And I am honored and find it incredibly unbelievably a blessing to help a few mm. lean closer into the light mm -hmm. and know that they are not alone. That is what I want people to know. That is what I want other sons and daughters of junkies to know. You are not alone. Mm -mm. And until you are strong enough, I can carry the weight for us all. I will continue sprinting to the light despite anyone that gets in our way. Mm. Because the greatest drug on earth is and always will be love. Yep. We're all chasing that high. Well, I love you. And I love I the love work that you. you are doing. And um, I'm going to lean into it. I'm leaning into all that light. And I am leading with love. <laughs> yes. And I'm not ashamed of nothing. So and I, I am love proud it. of you. Thank you. For saying that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I am thankful for your life. When we see and speak publicly, it means a lot to always say that. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was afraid that we were going to lose you. Mm. Yeah. And I have so many friends that I have almost lost or lost. And so I do not take that for granted. I think that we do not talk about enough things in our community enough. And one mm -hmm. of them is breast cancer and checking yourself Absolutely. and going to your appointments because we die more. So we have to do more in the words of my bestie, Dr. Jackie. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so we have to do a better job of communicating mm -hmm. about the pain. We do. So that we can prevent some of it. Absolutely. Because we don't all have to continue to die at a high rate right. if we just go and do the preventative. Yeah. And so. And tell somebody. Don't do this alone. We're not in this alone. That's all I'm doing. We may not all have a me and Michelle, but there is a tyranny and there's an April <laughs> here to support you. So always, everybody, take that away. You are not alone. You are not alone. Lean into it. Yes. <laughs> well, tell everybody how they can catch up with you and how they can have their own copy of The Daughter of a Junkie, a true Yes, story. yes. Again, I have an ebook, a hardcover, and an audio book that is scored with original music by Maya Ramadan, also with sound effects that you can get at Amazon.com. I'm on social media, Instagram, my website, everything. If you just put in the, T-H-E, daughter of a junkie, my face is going to come up. Anywhere and everywhere, wherever you go, it's the daughter of a junkie. And then you'll find me. Yes. Follow her on all her social media. And you may be able to catch her at a 
book stop on this yes, campaign tour. Yes, tabletop. <laughs> yes, any of those things. Make sure you tap in. I am in. not campaigning. I am a judge. Exactly. I do not campaign. Her no. book is. Her book does. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been a wonderful conversation. You always make my heart smile and, and I always learn something new in your presence. So I thank you for being you. I thank you for your honesty. And we're sending all this love to your dad, too. Yeah. Um, so. And thank you for this platform, not just for me, but for all of us. I mean, um, over and over. I, I know you hear it over and over and over. Like, April has done more, not just for women, but for the Atlanta community as anyone, you know, you do not get your flowers enough. Like you have been doing this and doing the work for, I know, 25 years mm-hmm. that I've seen. Oh. And it's been incredible, mm-hmm. not um, just to be a part of the ride, but to watch you work. I'm proud of you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for being a part of my tribe. Yes. I always show up for you. You do. Always. And you'll always show up for me. Always. We'll keep doing it. We will. And it's always Aries season. Always. (laughs) 365 days a year. I don't care what this other side is talking about. Aries season. (laughs) Period. We run the world. But this has been another episode of Just Breathe with April Love. And it has been such a good one. So make sure you tap in, subscribe, download, and share. And we're on Google Play, iHeartRadio, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Until next time, family, just breathe. Take it all in. Leave with love and lean into the light. Make sure you tap in with me on all my social media at Ask April Love and my website, the AskAprilLoveBrand.com.